Well, there are weeks that can be overwhelming. And I'm not really talking about this week. I'm talking about all those other weeks where there are impeachment trials, where there are threats of World War III. And then, of course, when there are things that are much closer to home than those, none of which we can control. And all of them which cause anguish and pain for our souls. Those weeks when we're overwhelmed, that's when we need a Savior. That's when we need hope that is better than the hope that we could somehow gain because of our own good behavior. I want to invite you to turn in your Bibles to 1 Peter chapter 3. 1 Peter chapter 3, we'll begin reading in verse 18. And I just want to pause and say I wasn't supposed to be here this morning, but uh, David Thoman, who was uh, supposed to bring the message this morning, uh, went home to be with the Lord on Tuesday. But I didn't want to miss the opportunity, actually, to share with you the good news of what Jesus has done and figured that there was no better way than to point you to the text that we already had scheduled. First uh, Peter chapter 3, verse 18 and following, which tells us that the Gospel that we believe, that we rehearse week after week after week, which on ordinary days may seem like just a repetitive message that you'd want to move on from, on those overwhelming weeks, that's when we really need it. And that's what reminds us that even in the hardest times, the news is great. And the hope is living. And we have something that no one else in the world have. Because we have a Savior who died for us to purchase our salvation, who rose again that we might be victorious, and who now lives that we might be free. So let's look at this text, and I hope that you're as encouraged by it as I have been. 1 Peter chapter 3, beginning verse 18. It says, For Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous. Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous that He might bring us to God. There in this partial sentence is the sum of what it means to be Christian. The most precious truth in the entire universe is encapsulated in these few words. That Christ suffered for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, to bring us to God. Let me just be clear before I even talk about this, that Christianity 
does not equal good behavior. The message of Jesus is not, you guys need to get your act together. The message of Jesus is that He suffered for sins as the righteous one for the unrighteous ones. So that those of us who are unrighteous might be united with God. We might be brought near and reconciled with God. That's the message of Christianity. (laughs) And yet, we still seem to be stuck on trying a little harder, doing a little better, thinking we're going to get what we deserve when in effect we don't want what we deserve. We want what Christ died to purchase for us. Because Christ died once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, that He might bring us to God. This is the good news of Christianity. That on the cross, the historical cross of Golgotha, where Jesus of Nazareth was crucified between two thieves, On that cross, God was doing something that wasn't apparent to those who were looking. What God was doing was that He was placing the sin of those who are unrighteous then and throughout the ages, you and me, onto His righteous Son. His Son who had done nothing to deserve any unjust treatment. He'd done nothing to deserve any suffering. He'd done nothing to deserve any pain. Yet, He bore it for you and for me. That's at the heart of what it means to be Christian. That we believe God was satisfying His wrath and justice on sin by placing it on His Son instead of placing it on the people like you and me who deserve it. And it's amazing that He would do that. And it's stunning that through no merit of our own, no, does nothing that we have done to deserve it. We can be the recipients of the grace and mercy and forgiveness of God. And when we have this grace, mercy, and forgiveness, then we also can be reconciled to God. That those who were far off, when sin separated you from God, He has brought near by the blood of His Son. He suffered for sins once that righteous for the unrighteous to bring us to God. The the prospect that somebody else stepped in and brought God and sinners together is remarkable. Because every other religious message says you sinners need to make your way to God on your own. 
But this encapsulated heart of Christianity says, Jesus has done that. He suffered once for sin, the righteous, the unrighteous, that He might bring us to God, being put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the Spirit. The, the suffering death of Jesus is not all of the good news. It's good news, but it's not all the good news. The, the, the good news includes His resurrection. He is put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the Spirit. It, that both His death and His resurrection assure us that God accepts His sacrifice. That His suffering was not in vain, but rather God recognizes His suffering as counting for me so that I can be forgiven and brought near to God. That is the guarantee of the cross and resurrection of Jesus. That's what it, to believe that is what makes you a Christian. You might have all kinds of behavioral issues to work out, but that is what makes you Christian. And I plead with you, don't walk out of this room without embracing it with your whole heart. Because Jesus died and rose again that you might have Salvation. Here's where this text becomes a little bit of a challenge. Martin Luther, father of the Protestant Reformation, said he has no idea what this text is talking about. <laughs> and the wheels come off in two or three places and we'll stop and explain them a little bit. But it says, He was made alive in the Spirit, in the Spirit in which He went and proclaimed to the spirits in prison. Of course. He proclaimed to the spirits in prison. Now I want you to see, when did He do that? He did this after He was made alive. After He, was, after he died and rose again, the risen Christ was proclaiming to these disobedient spirits, that's what the last phrase here says, these disobedient spirits, what would He have been saying after His resurrection? Jesus would have been proclaiming that He alone merits glory. That He alone deserves obedience. That Jesus alone stands unrivaled as a King of kings and the Lord of lords. That is the message of Christianity because of the death and resurrection of Jesus. And all of these spirits who being in prison means they were cast out, I believe, of heaven okay, and witnessed the risen Christ who had obviously already made a mockery of death by His resurrection who had defanged Satan and rendered Him powerless Jesus, the risen Jesus, proclaimed to those spirits, your days are numbered. Ultimately, whatever difficulty you had this week, whatever fears plagued you this week, they are nothing in the face 
of the risen Christ. So these spirits now, and we'll see in a minute, are subjected to the authority of Jesus. Well, Jesus purchases our salvation and assures our victory. I want you to see here what it means or what it looks like for Him to save us. These spirits were disobedient when God was patient in the days of Noah. Now here we go. Okay, Here's the second place where the wheels appear to fall off. In the days of Noah. I just simply think that these spirits who are disobedient to God have been plaguing the people of God for ages. Including before Noah. And if you read the first few chapters of Genesis, you'll see some of them. And they were awful. That's what makes him think of Noah and the flood. And so he says, God was waiting patiently in the days of Noah while the ark was being prepared, in which a few, that is eight persons, were brought safely through the water. So he wants to highlight what the the chief lesson from the flood is going to be. It is that there is an ark that saves people from judgment. That's what, the, that's what the waters are here. That's what the flood is. It is God's judgment. And so the message that Peter has for all of us is that God is saving some from His judgment. That the dying on the cross, the suffering of Jesus and His resurrection rescues people from judgment. Baptism, which corresponds to this. Okay? Baptism, which corresponds to this. So, don't make some correspondence that isn't there. He's already been clear what the course, what correspondence He wants you to see. He wants you to see there is an ark that saves people from judgment. That's what baptism corresponds to. To make it more explicit, he says that it's not the removal of dirt from the body. In other words, it is not you being baptized that somehow does something to merit your improvement or your position before God. It doesn't do any of that. Rather, Baptism corresponds to this as an appeal to God for a good conscience. Baptism is you appealing to God for or with a good conscience to say, God, I believe in Jesus and need to be saved as though He was my ark from your judgment. It is that appeal of faith that baptism corresponds to. And when you appeal to Him by faith, when you trust in the work of Jesus to be that ark of safety for you in the face of judgment, it now saves you. It is that faith and that ark that saves you, not 
the act of baptism. It is this correspondence of Jesus to the ark that provides salvation. And to make it even more clear, just in case you're saying, I'm not sure. He says, this now saves you through the resurrection of Jesus. It is not the water. It is the resurrection of Jesus. His death, His resurrection for you that guarantees your salvation from your sin and your reconciliation to God. So you may be certain that the Gospel, this good news that we have been talking about, is that it saves you completely. The other thing you need to see is that it saves you completely and it guarantees your victory here. So, through the resurrection of Jesus Christ, who has gone into heaven and is at the right hand of God? So what is at stake here is the resurrection and the ascension of Jesus Christ to the right hand of God, the position of all authority in the universe. That is what, that is where Jesus is. That is what Jesus is doing right now. And so, you have a hard week. You have some pain and some disappointment. I want to tell you, that better than that, you have a Savior who is at the right hand of God, ruling all things and making intercession for you. And not only that, those things which oppose you, the angels, authorities, and powers, they have been subjected to Christ. That the very things that right now are causing you pain, the very things that oppose your soul have been conquered and will not ultimately destroy you. Because they have been wrestled into subjection by the risen Christ. Now make no mistake here what is going on. If you recall, if you just look back a few verses, you'll notice in chapter 2, he said, you'll find yourselves as pilgrims and aliens not belonging here. You'll find yourself underneath some human institutions. Be subject to every human institution, he said. You're going to find some of you who are slaves, you're going to find yourselves under the authority of some people who are crooked and who would hurt you. Wives? Be subject to your husbands. All of this, be subject, be subject, be subject. And here you have the fact that Jesus is subject to no one. And you are His. So you, being subject to other people, you don't have to fear them. You don't have to worry that some other thing is going to do you eternal harm when you have the risen Christ on your side. 
and angels and authorities and powers have been subjected to Him. Your victory is certain because Christ's has already taken place. See, this this is why we believe in Christ. We don't believe in Christ because somehow it helps us to be nicer or to be less angry or to somehow get our act together. We believe in Christ because the, the answers of the universe are resolved in the resurrection of Jesus. And these major problems, sin and death and the devil, are all brought under subjection to Him so that they do not win the day. Your salvation and your victory are the result of the finished work of Jesus on the cross and in His resurrection. But more than that, the the suffering of Jesus achieves your freedom as well. Look at this. That's where he picks up in the next verse. Since therefore Christ suffered in the flesh. You can't escape this central message of Jesus. That His suffering had value for you. We go back there over and over and so does Peter. Since Christ suffered in the flesh, the Gospel of Jesus matters. So you must also orient your life so that it matches the Gospel. So that it matches the suffering of Jesus. That you think of yourself the way that Jesus thought. Arm yourselves with the same way of thinking. Identify yourself would be another way you can think about it. Identify yourself with Jesus. What does this mean? This simply means that if He is the Master in everything including you are subject to Him and He suffered, why would you think that your life is going to be better than your Master's life? Why would you think that if He suffered unjustly, somehow you're, you'll be free of it? You won't be. This is a little bit to say, adjust your expectations to realize what Christianity means is you are following a suffering Savior. So, don't expect otherwise. Since therefore Christ suffered in the flesh, arm yourselves with the same way of thinking, for whoever suffered in the flesh has ceased from sin. Whoever has suffered in the flesh has ceased from sin. And what I think he has in mind here is that every believer who has identified with Christ and His suffering made it your own so that your unjust suffering has represented already it so much in the book in the hands of a, a bad husband or a bad master or an unfair uh, institution of government. All of that suffering forms in you the character of Christ and the freedom 
from sin. The suffering of Christ and your identification with it breaks the power that sin would have over you. The one who has suffered has ceased from sin. Now, this is what he plays out then in the rest of this text. He says, for us to live for the rest of the time in the flesh, no longer for human passion, but for the will of God. For the time that is past suffices for doing what the Gentiles do. It's interesting. His, the message of Christianity might sound like, hey, I have good news for you when you die. Okay? Don't misunderstand it to be merely that. There is good news when you die. But it is not merely that. It is also news so that this time, right now, Sunday afternoon, the rest of the time you have, you should no longer live for human passion, but for the will of God. That if you believe in Jesus, there is an inflection point in your life where no longer are you after the things that the world around you is after. No longer are you identified with the things that the people around you are identified with. You are now identified with a suffering Savior and long to do the will of God. That's what he's saying here. You're after the will of God, not the human passions. They said the time has passed. It's, it's sufficient. You don't need any more time of doing those old things. Some of you, maybe you had the privilege of being in a church nursery and growing up in Sunday school and you said, I never did those things. Guess what? You've had plenty of time to do them and <laughs> you don't need to go there. Right? You're done. We're all done. He says, if you trust Christ, you don't need those things anymore for doing what the Gentiles want to do. By Gentiles, he simply means you're an exile and a stranger in this world. You don't belong here. The people who do belong here, he's calling Gentiles here, these are the things they want to do. They want to live in sensuality, passions, drunkenness, orgies, drinking parties, lawless idolatry. There are lots of lists of vices in the New Testament, but I want you to notice that this list of vices centers on two or three things. He says the things that mark those outside of the family of God, outside of this small band of exiles and strangers called the church, the things that mark them, first of all, are sexual immorality. Living in sensuality, in passions, in orgies. That the, I mean, you don't have to look very far, do you? To realize, yes, this is the case. This, these are the issues of our time, just like they were of Peter's time. Because these have always been the things that mark the world. So sexuality is one. The other thing I'll have you notice is substance abuse. Sensuality, passions, orgies, but yes, drunkenness, drinking parties. In the next verse, debauchery. Okay? It doesn't matter if it's legal. If it causes you 
to lose your faculties or lose your ability to engage fully with life, it's outside of what God has for you. Whether it's marijuana or alcohol or whatever else it is. Because these are the distinguishing marks of those out on the outside. And so I just want to warn you against those. You don't need those anymore. The time is already done. They're not your things any longer. And then he says lawless idolatry. Lawless idolatry. Now, he throws that in and it appears to be unrelated. It probably is mixed in with all these others because I think that this lawless idolatry is the statecraft of the world in which the church lived. In um, Cappadocia and Bithynia and all of these places to which this letter was written, uh, they were subject to the emperor and the emperor required their worship. And so emperor worship was a real thing that was messed up. And involved lots of other messed up things where he would, he would expect people to, to worship him. And the reason I mention this is because there is pressure here from this institution of men, back in chapter 2, to, to idolatry that has no place with the people of God. And the closest connection that I can suggest to you is that there can be things about the government that you live with that expects things of you or invites things of you that are opposed to the character of Jesus. And I just want to warn you that you don't have to engage the political situation. You don't have to engage the governmental issues the same way as the Gentiles. Okay? That would be the parallel here that I would make with idolatry. And so whether it's sexuality or whether it's substance abuse or whether it's um, pressure from the, the government to conform, whatever it may be, it's the time to do it for doing those things is behind you. And he indicates this by saying with respect to these things, they're surprised when you don't join them in the same flood of debauchery. They're surprised. They're saying, don't you want to fit in? Don't you want to be like us? That's the invitation. Or should I say, that's the pressure from the outside. Because if you're not like us, you have no place. You're an alien and a stranger. You don't belong here. And so the expectation is when, when you say, no, I've got something better, they'll say, what's wrong with you? And that's when you give a reason for the hope that's in you with meekness and fear. Chapter 3, verse 15. Because that's the way that you relate to those things. They're surprised by it. And when they're surprised, they can't help but talk bad about you. They malign you. So they're talking bad about you. And it says when you give an answer with meekness and fear, they are ashamed. But, he says, the chief thing you need to know about all of this, those who speak against you and those who 
pressure you to do things not in accord with Christ, they will give account to Him who is ready to judge the living and the dead. This is the other side of the resurrection of Jesus. You see, the resurrection of Jesus, I already said, it is His death and resurrection that purchases for you your salvation. It is His resurrection that guarantees your victory that these things that oppose you and hurt you so badly right now don't win. But, it is also His resurrection that guarantees your freedom from sin. And your freedom to forgive. And your freedom to not retaliate because you can say they will give account to Him who judges the living and the dead. When Christ stands at the right hand of God and everything is subjected to Him, He is the judge who will do what is right. And their answering to Him is way better than their answering to you. And I am so free to not shout back I am so free not to be angry and retaliate when I know they're going to answer to Him, not me. I'm so thankful for that because of the resurrection of Jesus. That's why we talk about the Gospel. This verse says, that's why the Gospel is preached to those who are dead. And then you say, oh, here the wheels come off again. We'll put them back on. Okay? Gospel is preached to those who are dead. I think what he's saying is they were formerly alive and the Gospel was preached to them. They have subsequently died. And now that they're dead, it is very important you know the effects that the Gospel has on them. The Gospel is preached even to those who are dead that though judged in the flesh the way people are, yes, they were maligned. Yes, they were pressured. Yes, people spoke badly about them because they didn't run into the same excess rioting as everybody else in debauchery. People had their opinions about them. They judged them. Yes, they did. They were judged the way people were judged. But now that they've died, the Gospel was preached to them so that you might be certain that they live in the Spirit the way God does. In other words, maligned, disrespected, um, outcast, ignored in this world, the resurrection of Jesus will more than compensate. And it is the resurrection of Jesus that is Proclaimed by the Gospel. So the reason we talk about the Gospel is the Gospel frees us from the fear of their comments, from the pressure of their invitations, so that we might be free and be certain of the resurrection. Now this is the same... The reason I know this is about the resurrection is exactly the same language He used up in verse 18 when He said that Christ died in the flesh but was made alive in the Spirit. It's the same language. Those who believe the Gospel die and are made alive in the Spirit just like Christ. 
So ultimately, please, please get rid of your small ideas of what it means to be a Christian. That somehow you're nicer than other people or you're better behavior, you're busy on Sunday mornings. Because what it means to be a Christian is that you are one and your heart is captured and you are clinging to a crucified and risen Savior who purchases for you eternal salvation from your sins. Who guarantees by the fact of His resurrection that all opposing powers are crushed and your victory is certain. And He insists that you now live free without the pressure of the outsiders telling you you've got to do it this way or maligning you when you don't. And you don't have to follow them in their sin because no matter how they treat you, you will rise again. Let's pray. Our great God and Father, would You just continue to free us as we believe the Gospel? Would You continue to satisfy and comfort our hearts with the resurrection Would You continue to give us stamina and perseverance because of the victory of Christ? And Father, may we rest forever in the salvation that comes because Christ was our substitute. And we'll thank You in His name. Amen.